You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine-Banks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. This is Victor Shi, um, one of the co-hosts of this podcast and also an incoming freshman at UCLA next year. Um, Jill, I'll hand it off to you to give our audience a brief introduction about who you are. Hi, I'm a former Watergate special prosecutor and also the author of The Watergate Girl. Uh, I mentioned because our guest today has written a book that is coming out on September 15th and we will be uh, proud to be talking to him about both gun laws and his book today. Yeah. Um, so like Jill said, um, on our show today, we are so fortunate to be joined by one of the leading voices advocating for safe gun policies and stopping gun violence, Fred Gutenberg. Um, we'll talk to Fred about those issues and his new book, um, Find, the new Hel- Find the Helpers, What 9-11 and Parkland Taught Me About Recovery, Purpose, and Hope. And I actually have it with me right here on my iPad. Um, Fred sent us an e-version of it, but this is what the cover looks like for you all to um, purchase on Amazon or wherever you get your books. Um, there it is flying above me back there, too. That, too, yes. Um, so, Fred, first, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, so, I wanted to give our, begin our conversation by letting you share your story about what prompted your involvement in this fight to stop gun violence and promote sun, uh, safe gun policies. Well, my story, unfortunately, became one that's way too familiar to the American story, and that is that my daughter became a victim of gun violence. Um, she was 14. I sent two children to school. Actually, both children were victims of gun violence because my son didn't get shot, but he heard his sister getting shot. And he deals with that every single day going forward. Um, but on February 14th, 2018, um, our day started like really any other typical day, except it happened to have been Valentine's Day. And we were all looking forward to the evening where as a family, you know, we could celebrate Valentine's Day. It was always my wife's favorite holiday. (laughs) And um, we sent two children to school that morning and only one of them came home. And, you know, four months prior to that, um, my brother who uh, ran the triage for 9-11, passed away from cancer related to his service there. So as a family, we were still going through a mourning process from that. I'm a part of a very large family. I'm one of five kids. Um, My parents are still alive. We've never dealt with loss. We've never really had to deal with that kind of grief until my brother went through it. And it was like the worst thing in the world we'd ever gone through until my daughter was murdered. And, um, I, the following day after her murder, um, I attended a vigil in Parkland, Florida. Thousands of people were there from all over. I just felt like I needed to be with community. Um, I went with my son, some family and friends. My wife and other friends and family stayed home. She was just not able to get out. And when I got there, I saw the mayor who had asked me to speak when I got there. Um, I wasn't prepared, you know, there were no prepared remarks, but I went up there, I let it rip, you know, I told the world how I was feeling very personally, and anyone who's gotten to know me since then knows 
I don't, I don't do the political thing. I just, I tell people how I feel. Um, because for me, I've never stopped being a father of two kids. Um, and as a father of two kids, um, as a parent, always reacting to what happens to our children. Um, that's what we do. And so I've spent the past two and a half years in this gun safety movement because I am reacting to what happened to my children. As I've gone out in this movement, um, I've embraced the bigger issue and my world has exploded to the reality of 40,000 people per year who die of gun violence and the need to do something about that. And so that's how I got into this movement. Um, that's how I started getting into these um, places where I've got to know people across this country who are amazing and wonderful. I got to know you, Jill, um, you know, a couple of Politicons we've seen each other on a couple of interviews. And, you know, it, it reinforced for me the idea that everywhere I go and everything I do, there are just amazing people who want to do what's best for those around them and for this country. Now, listen, I'm realistic. There's the other part, the other side as well. Um, but for those who weren't part of the conversation we had at the start of this, um, hopeful, I really am. I think November 3rd, we get to restore this country to a place that we can be proud of and where we will deal with gun violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we're so fortunate to have you in this fight. And like you said, um, we'll be talking about your book and part of your book talks a lot about, you know, the phases of recovery, purpose and hope. So we want to get into that later in this discussion. But, um, you know, before we discuss some of the solutions and remedies we can act to stop gun violence, um, I just want to get into some of the root causes of gun violence and why students um, like myself and other high schoolers and middle schoolers and elementary schoolers are forced to partake in active shooter drills in America. Um, it's gut-wrenching to know that that is the reality in America, but I'd like your views on what you think the main factors are that contribute to the staggering rates of gun violence. Um, like, why is this happening and why is America um, the country that has to face the sad reality? Well, I, I, since you mentioned um, those drills, you know who else goes through those drills with you? Potential future shooters. So they're also learning flaws and holes and things to react to. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that wasn't your question, but that's, I do have some concerns with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, listen, this is a uniquely American problem, and we all know that. Um, you can go across the world, country to country, um, mental health issues exist. You can go across the world, country to country, and economic differences exist. Um, you can go across the world, country to country, and they deal with so many of the same day-to-day -day issues as we deal with in America. So why is the gun violence problem different here because we have 400 million weapons on the streets of America because we have a gun lobby that has continued to push gun sales over lives because we have a gun lobby that let's face it 
my daughter was a cost of doing business for them. There is no other way to say that. And as part of their doing business, they have used money to hold legislators and legislation hostage so that taking the steps to keep you and the other students free from gun violence, not just in school, movie theaters, a place of worship, a community center, a park, um, taking the steps to do something about that are not an option because for the gun lobby and those that they've held hostage, that would mean we would potentially be taking steps to reduce gun sales. And that's not the business they're in. That is a uniquely American problem. And the truth is, because we already have 400 million weapons on the street, let me take a step back about the uniquely American nature of this. We just went through, we're going through a pandemic. The start of this pandemic, this administration took the advice of the NRA and unleashed a gun surge on America, okay? You all remember essential businesses versus non-essential businesses and, you know, only essential businesses could be open. And it was pretty clear to me what an essential business should have been. A gun store should not have been an essential business, mm -hmm. but they were. And you had this, this, you had this communication, I guess, where people were getting amped up and nervous. Jobs were becoming a concern. Economic despair in many cases setting in. And at the same time, we're sending people who are nervous, who are feeling despair and telling them, go out and buy guns. That's what this administration did and it worked. The, the level of gun ownership in this country expanded by an, just an unbelievable amount. I mean, last year we used to talk about 300 million weapons on the streets of America. Now we talk about 400 million weapons on the streets of America. So we can't just fix it by saying, let's have background checks. That's a starting point. But background checks only affect future purchases. We're gonna to have to deal with the reality of who's also buying ammunition because you have many prohibited purchasers right now with possession of weapons um, who shouldn't have them, who just walk into a store to buy the bullets. So the way you deal with existing weapons is by tackling ammunition. Um, but there's so many other things that we can do. I know that wasn't your question, but in this country, it is different. There's economic factors that drive that, um, but the main reason, and, and the gun lobby will scream, oh, mental health, mental health, okay? It's a factor, I get that, but that's not the reason. The reason is we have a lobby that has prioritized a gun sale over your life. So Fred, I wanna follow up on some of the things that you've been talking about. Um, and one is, of course, the NRA, because you mentioned all the lobbying uh, and how that impacts um, and one of the things I forgot to mention when I was introducing myself is that I was general counsel of the U.S. Army uh, during the Carter administration. And in that role, I actually interacted with Ab Mikva, who was um, a congressman from Illinois and the NRA in trying to change 
an army program that gave the NRA excess weapons. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the help of Ab Mikva, um, and there's now a documentary about to be released about him. And maybe wow. Victor and I can post that on our website. Um, we were able to stop that. Wow. But obviously the NRA has been a very effective um, voice for gun owners, although it seems like they don't represent the viewpoints of all those gun owners because gun owners support uh, sane and safe legislation or legislation to make gun ownership safer in America. But so I wanna ask you what you think in terms of how much impact has the NRA had? How much impact has the lack of action from Republicans in the Senate to even take up the common sense legislation that's been passed in the House and that's been proposed? Uh, and I, you know, mostly we've been talking about background checks. I think it's really interesting, your concept of let's also control the ammunition uh, that ammunition. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that idea. And I yeah. think that's one that deserves a lot more attention. The only thing I've ever heard before has been uh, in terms of limiting the number of rounds that people can buy. Um, and this is a, a whole different approach. But so what do you think the role of the Republicans are? What do you yeah. think the, role of the NRA is? Um, so let's let's talk about that. Well, first, I'm going to challenge something you said. They have mm -hmm. been a terrible voice for gun owners. They do not represent the view of the majority of gun owners, which actually want to see more done about gun safety. Most gun owners are reasonable, responsible gun owners who know full well they could be walking down a street or in a mall or at church and become a victim of gun violence because of our failure to do anything. The thing about the NRA, um, they have been wonderful at representing the business interests. Mm -hmm. And listen, we've all seen how they've actually abused their members and the dues received from their members on expensive haircuts and homes and vacations. So they're a miserable organization. And what is so crazy about them is, you know, after Jamie was killed, I went on this mission. I don't know if I can curse on this podcast or not. So I won't. But what I said around my house and to my family and friends, this the day I came home from that vigil, I'm going to break that effing gun lobby. And I've been on a mission ever since to do that because they do hold our legislators and legislation hostage. And we've weakened them. Never in a million years, though, did I think they would ultimately do something that would lead to their downfall. They actually took advantage of their members. They ultimately committed a crime on their members, and that's the reason that they are ultimately gonna be torn apart. So, you know, um, you know they're snakes. So, but, but here's the thing. Um, remember a couple of years, go back before 2018. Remember all, anyone running for office they used to all fight over that NRA A rating. Yeah. <laughs> they don't anymore. Yeah. You don't even see the NRA posting ratings anymore because we beat them in 2018. We flipped the house on this issue. So they don't post ratings anymore. The only time you see anybody highlighting and bragging about their NRA, a, NRA rating is when they have an F. Okay. 
people don't want to brag about it because they are now toxic. This issue is now an issue that people will vote on because they want to fix it. And you can go across the country. We flipped the house on it, even in Florida, okay? Nikki Fried, who won for Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services, she made gun safety her platform. It's a statewide, she's the only statewide Democrat who won, and she won on this issue. So Americans, when they have the chance to vote on this, are voting for it. However, the, the NRA has a really powerful weapon. The guy in the White House is their megaphone, and they know that. And Mitch McConnell has taken um, um, pride in being a grim reaper on legislation. And so nothing, forget about it, will it, will it make it through a vote in the Senate? They won't even discuss it in the Senate. Um, so yes, to your question, the Republicans who are not enacting the will of the people, the will of the voters, who are not responding to what voters want, 2018, we did the House. In 2020, we're going to flip the Senate. And Mitch McConnell, I don't know if he's going to lose in Kentucky or not, but he won't be majority leader anymore. Do you think that the dissolution of the NRA, um, this is referring to the New York Attorney General's um, lawsuit, yeah. uh, and you mentioned some of the corruption that brought about this, which was total embezzlement of funds, from the NRA, uh, you know, members pay dues and uh, the leadership was using it for their own personal gain. Um, do you think dissolution of the NRA would have any impact on gun violence, would help, or do you think that some other organization would just form to replace it? What do you think might happen? So the NRA is the unified national voice. Um, so I think their um, downfall helps in the possibility of getting national legislation done. And ultimately, the way to solve this is through national legislation. But the reality is, there are a lot of other groups, um, you know, Ohio, Buckeye, Firearms, for example, and other groups that are even more radical than the NRA. But they're local. They don't have the reach of the NRA. Now, will one of them eventually step up and take on that role? Hey, anything is possible. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, voters are telling legislators what they want on this issue. You know, anything can happen. <laughs> I think we're in 2020. Um, so I'm curious, you know, is there any chance that if Republicans continue to control the Senate that Mitch McConnell would ever let the Senate even discuss or vote on the bills that the House has already passed? Like, where do you see gun safety no, legislation going? Okay. The, Mitch, Mitch, Mitch McConnell is not going to turn into anything other than what he's already shown himself to be. Mm -hmm. He's done it for a long time. Um, I, I would say to you, Mitch McConnell, to me, is even more evil than Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is nothing more than a vessel for Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell enables Donald Trump to get his judges in place and to make sure that the Senate remains a firewall from anything happening. I, I believe fully November 3rd 
success requires flipping the Senate. The failure to do that is destructive to this country in ways that um, I don't even want to think about. But the choices are stark. This is this is not the listen. You're young. So you haven't had a chance yet to uh, walk into too many voting booths where you hold your nose and you say, yeah, they're all the same, you know, um, and if it doesn't work out in this election, we'll get to this. That's not this election. Yeah. Democracy is on the line in this election. You know, we all think about that in terms of Trump. I think about that in terms of McConnell too. Mm-hmm. And so on that subject, let's talk about some of the bills that have been uh, passed by the House and yeah. not even getting a hearing on the um, Senate floor. Um, do you think the laws, assuming that there's a, uh, a new Congress in January, that the pending laws are enough? Or do you have ideas? Obviously, you would like to see something addressing ammunition. Um, are there other things that you think would help to reduce gun violence in America? Well, so, and just so you know, on ammunition, that, that actually, there's, there's a law that's been introduced in the House and the Senate. It's called Jamie's Law. It's named after oh. my daughter. Oh. Um, oh. And, and it does just that. It extends background checks to ammunition. Um, so, what, are, what are the chances of that passing before January? <laughs> well, before January, there's no chance. Um, oh, after January? After January, I am optimistic that a comprehensive package that includes all that's already been passed in the House, as well as some additional things, will be done. You know, the House already has background checks. They still have to debate Jamie's law, but it'll pass. They're dealing with a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Um, They'll, with certainty, put more funding into CDC research and give them greater ability to make recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will also in the House and the Senate, and I know Joe Biden already says he agrees on this and wants to sign it, they'll take up a repeal of PLACA, the federal law that shields the gun manufacturers from liability lawsuits. I can't sue them. It's crazy. I can show how they were marketing their weapons to the kid who killed my daughter. And I can't sue them for it. And they knew they were doing it. They knew they were marketing to teenage boys. Okay, that's what they were doing. And they knew the outcome of that and they were taking no steps to prevent it. And I can't sue them. So, and that's because of PLACA. You're a lawyer. I believe if you want to permanently change the issue around gun violence in this country, give people like me the ability to sue these manufacturers, we'll force the change. It happened in tobacco. It was lawsuits that changed the world of tobacco. Mm -hmm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't heard of Jamie's Law, but I'm going to be following it closely from now on. Thank you. And so does, your lawsuit has been dismissed? Um, so you're talking about the lawsuit against the gun manufacturer? Yeah. So that wasn't, that was a lawsuit for declaratory judgment in Florida. Because as onerous as Plocket is, Florida adds another layer of potential 
harm mm -hmm. where if I were to sue the manufacturer and lose, which I would because I'm not allowed to sue them, Florida takes that a step further and says, if I sue them and lose, they can then sue me for legal fees and for loss of income, which they could define as a drop in stock price from a lawsuit. Um, so they would bankrupt me and they've bankrupted other families who have tried. So we were seeking a declaratory judgment saying that um, the Florida penalties should not apply here so that we could then after that make the decision, do we want to go forward with the right. full PLACA lawsuit? We're still um, working on that. Um, more to come. But what I have done is join with Everytown and Brady. And because I couldn't file my lawsuit, we have filed a complaint with the FTC over these deceptive marketing practices. Oh. Jill, I'm not going away. Good. Going That's why I'm wearing Jill's pin, which is a Superman, because you are the Superman of this movement. And we applaud you for taking this issue on. Um, it, it's, it's really important. Um, maybe you have advice for other citizens um, who would like to make policy changes either at the state or local level, because you've just mentioned how much more onerous Florida is than even the federal law. Um, are there ways that citizens can get involved in this? Do you have any suggestions for them? Oh, well, no, yes, there are a lot of ways. Um, I, I will say this, though. The way citizens get involved in the most immediate time frame is A, to not plan beyond November 3rd. Like every ounce of your energy right now is on November 3rd. And that means number one, making sure you're gonna vote, but today, like as soon as you can, figure out what your voting plan is because this is not like other elections. Okay, you don't wanna wait till the last minute. You don't wanna run into those kinds of problems. If you're in a state that allows you to get your ballot early, get it early. If they allow you to mail it in or put it in a Dropbox, take advantage of those opportunities early. If you can do early voting in person and you want to do that, don't wait until the last minute. Decide you're going to vote and have your voting plan and know what that plan is now. And then everyone else you know, you tell them the same thing. You make sure that everybody in this country, you touch as many people as you can, you call everyone and you can get them to commit to vote and to commit to figuring it out now. No waiting. Um, because the current guy is counting on people waiting and he's counting on chaos and he's counting on creating fear and he's counting on demotivating you not this election. So my advice to people is there is nothing beyond November 3rd. So I wanna just say, in addition to my Jill's pin, I was inspired by Michelle Obama's necklace and I am wearing my, oh my God. necklace. Wow. <laughs> so uh, I, this is, I haven't taken it off since I got it and I'm gonna wear it every day until November 3rd because voting is not only a constitutional right, it is a responsibility. 
and uh, particularly in this year, the 100th year of women fighting for and gaining the right to vote, I am particularly pushing that everyone use that right. Yes. So um, thanks for saying that, uh, Fred. We, appre we appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, before we get into your book, Fred, um, you know, I just want to draw on you know, the concept of this podcast, which is including um, younger generations as well. Um, we saw the power of young people, um, as you probably are well aware of, in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting, oh, yeah. with a wave of prominent young activists shaming not only federal elected officials, but also state elected officials in Florida for their inaction on common sense gun policies. And, you know, with their constant pressure, um, it worked. Florida passed um, a bill that banned bump stocks, um, imposed a waiting period between when someone buys a gun and when they receive it. Um, raised... Three weeks, three weeks after my daughter was killed, we passed legislation mm -hmm. in the state. In Florida, we're not talking yeah. about New York or best in Florida. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. I mean, with Florida's um, uh, lack of uh, gun policies in the past, like th that was extraordinary and um, really inspiring to see. But you know, as young people continue this fight and as citizens continue this fight to bring down gun violence in America, um, what would you say to young people in America and their adv advocacy efforts um, going forward and I guess beyond Election Day? So, so I'm gonna hold up my phone which because any young person who has been around me knows how I feel, but um, I am so proud of the young people around this country. And I had you all wrong because I thought this was destroying you guys. I have two teenage children who, you know, always this, and, and I didn't think young people knew how to communicate. And boy, I had the young people wrong because not only do you know how to communicate, you know exactly what you want. You guys are fierce about asking for it. And this thing that I thought was ruining you guys is your weapon. You were able to organize, strategize, and outmaneuver people with this thing. And I am so proud of you. And, and you even sent that message to Donald Trump when he had his little uh, uh, rally and nobody showed up. Okay. This is your weapon and you use it better than us older people and keep at it because you are our future leaders. We're counting on you. We, we owe you, okay, a country and a world where climate change, for example, is not getting worse, where we, we're bending the curve and we're starting to make it better. And we can do that. We owe you a country and a world where gun violence isn't continuing to spike. We're not gonna get rid of it, but we can bend the curve and start reducing it. Okay, we owe that to you. And so keep fighting with us and keep pushing us and legislators and those across this country because we owe that to you. That's the least that we can do. What I'll also say to young people and those from Parkland know how I feel about this because I know them all well. Mm -hmm. Enough of these college gap years, okay? Finish your education, get to school because to lead, you'll need it. So get it done. Um, I talk to you young people in my book because I talk a lot about perspective and strength and resilience and perseverance because I want you to know that in life, perspective is everything. 
Um, you know, we all go through moments in life that as we're going through them, we'll sit there and we'll say, that was the worst thing ever. Maybe it was a relationship or you did bad on a task or it's like, I'm never going to get through this. And two weeks later, you don't even remember what the moment was. And, you know, and I, and I use the example of what I went through to remind young people that whatever you're going through, okay, the perspective you have on it is more important ultimately than the thing you're going through. And to just always remember you have strength and resilience that will carry you forward. Um, I also want young people to know that whatever happens to you, how you react to it ultimately will matter more than what happened to you. And you can look at this country in all sorts of moments, some amazing moments, some tragic, 9-11, World Wars, Watergate. And it's out of these terrible moments that some of the most country's most inspiring stories and people have been born. Some of the country's leaders have come out of those moments. And I'm counting on you young people who are going through this moment in time in our country's history with us to help lead us out and to be our future leaders and just to remember your values. We're gonna be okay. That's such important advice. Um, and I hope that every young person uh, takes that to heart. Um, we want to move on to your book now, um, Find the Helpers, What 9-11 and Parkland Taught Me About Recovery, Purpose, and Hope. Um, just for everyone, um, you know, we're just going to hold the book up again. This is what the cover looks like for you to purchase on Amazon. Fred also has a, a big poster behind him um, as a reminder of that. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and that's my daughter back there as well. Oh my God, wow. Amazing. That's her dancing. Yeah, from her last dance competition, she had, it became known as the fly leap photo. Um, there was just a, a leap that she had, and an artist saw the photo and made that for us. It's beautiful. So beautiful. Um, yeah, and so in terms of your new book, um, it's being released on September fifteenth. Um, you've gotten so much praise for the book, and one of them that I thought really crystallized the book perfectly was um, former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. And if it's okay with you, I just want to read what she said. Um, yeah. She said, um, quote, few people better exemplified the power of turning tragedy into action than Fred Gutenberg, his grace, resilience, and courage in the face of unspeakable heartbreak serve as an inspiration to all of us. In the fight to end gun violence in America, Fred has not only been there for me, but has also found ways to engage new voices and build new bridges while honoring the memory of his daughter. This book offers powerful and heartening lessons on how we can help one another move forward and build a safer, more just world. And that's just such a powerful um, and true praise for the book that I think really crystallizes what this book is all about. And, you know, there's also praise from Congresswoman Eric Swowell and Alyssa Milano, but, um, for our audience, uh, you know, listening today, um, this, this book will already be out. So can you walk our audience through the premise behind your book and what lesson you hope readers will take away after they read the book? You know, when I set out to write the book, writing for me after Jamie was killed became like the one thing that, that helped me. It became cathartic. I just, it helped me get things off my chest. So I was constantly writing. 
Anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that became a real repository for a lot of my writing. But I was also writing things down every day about what was going on. Um, and at some point, I said to my wife, I want to write a book. I want to tell our story. Um, and so I did. And the book I wrote was the intention of it was to just tell my story. Um, I did it without having any publisher because I wanted to tell my story, my way, my voice, and not having anybody saying, you might want to try this or that, because that's not the book I wanted to write. I, I just, I wrote it for me. But once it was done, I wanted to get it published. And the truth is, early on, the publishers didn't want an autobiographical story. That, that's not what the marketplace response to these days, and they didn't want another Parkland story. So I went to um, a book agent, and Jill, you've done books, and you're familiar with this. And I said, I guess I'm not good at getting my book published, so I need your help. It was, the, to me, the issue wasn't what I had written, because that was my story. And he pushed me hard. And he, because of what he did, it, this became a much better book. He said, you're not done writing. It's not that it's not your story because you're not done. And I'm like, what do you mean? I, so I, I said, I've told, I've said everything. He goes, no, you, you haven't. He goes, I read what you wrote. He goes, I am reading story after story of people in your life. He goes, there's more there that you need to tell. He goes, go deeper. Tell more of those details you know, bring the reader in more into how those people helped you. So he goes, tell your story, but keep on telling. He goes, there's more. And I was kind of at a point where I was maybe a little exhausted at that point by the writing process. So I wasn't eager to do that, but I went back and I did it. Um, and it turned to the book that you have there, Find the Helpers, because and I'm so thankful that his name is Howard and he's Washington based. And I, I could not be more thankful that he gave me that shove in the back and pushed me because my story is not possible without all of the people who surrounded me, who carried me, who brought me forward, who helped me and my family to be okay. Um, it isn't a story of, what happened on February 14th or what happened to my brother. Ultimately, the book is about all of the people who actually gave my family and I hope, um, who, who held me together on February 14th and 15th when I said I feel broken, um, and who showed me the way around, whether it be Washington, D.C., or media, or through the grieving process, when I had no expectation that anybody would. And, and I'll use as an example um, Vice President Biden, and I write about him a lot in this book, because nobody has meant more to me and how I've gone forward through grief than Vice President Biden. Um, he reached out 10 days after Jamie was killed. Uh, I didn't pick up my phone because I didn't recognize the number and I was getting all these calls. 
he left a message and he said, this is Vice President Biden. And I'm like, oh my God, I didn't pick up the phone. Um, and I'm going to call you back at such and such time. So make sure you pick up. And so I did. Um, and we spent 45 minutes on the phone. He was going from Virginia to New York for a Bo Biden event. Um, and it was like talking to my uncle or a good friend. It was, and he, he just wants to know about my family, about me. He wanted to know a lot about Jamie, um, about my son, Jesse. And he wanted to talk to me about how he approached getting through grief. And he's a man who knows how to do this, unfortunately. Um, and on the call, he, he used the phrase over and over, mission and purpose. Now, when I spoke to him, I knew my life was going to be changed. I knew I wanted to throw my voice into this. But mission and purpose helped me kind of think through how I was going to go forward. And we talked it out on the phone. So he gave me the path, but it didn't end there because three weeks later, he was in Florida for another Bill Biden event. Um, and he told me, you know, why don't you bring another one of the Parkland parents? And so I did. And I thought we were going to just meet him and shake his hand. And he took us into a private room. So I figured, okay, we'll spend a couple of minutes because he had like several hundred people waiting to hear him speak. And forget several minutes, he sat us down. 20 minutes into that conversation, I said to him, you have like a room full of people out there waiting for you. Don't you need to go? And he, and he said, this is more important. Wow. Because that's who he is. Yeah. And what he was talking to us about, and by the way, he spent about another 20 minutes with us. Whoa. <laughs> it blew me away that he actually came prepared to talk to us about our marriages and our families. And he wanted us to know that 92% of families after an event like this fall apart. Marriages end. And he, he, he and I'll just, I'll never forget it because he said, he goes, but I'm telling you this because I don't want you in the 92%. So he goes, you need to know why that happens and you need to have a plan. And, and it, he goes, it happens. And, and he is the only person to this day to explain this to me. And now I tell it all over because I want people grieving to understand this because he was right. He said to me, everybody grieves differently. And if you know that, then you'll be able to grieve differently, but also find ways to be supportive of one another, you know, and nobody else said that to me. My wife and I grieve differently. You see me, I'm really public. I'm out there. She has been intensely private. That's not her place. Um, and because he said that to me, rather than me feeling like there's something wrong with us, I felt like, you know what? It's okay, but we got to do this together. Um, he's the only person who ever said that to me. Sounds and like absolutely fabulous advice and helped you. He's a helper. He is a helper. And I, I think you are a helper and I'm, 
you know, your book is coming out at a time when we are nearing 200,000 deaths from COVID in America. And um, obviously more worldwide. Yep. And so I'm hoping that your book will inspire and give comfort and help to all of those who have lost a loved one or um, who've survived COVID but may have continuing problems. Um, you know, the post COVID uh, symptoms are serious. And your book is a book that could help people through this. So I'm glad that we've had this opportunity, you know, to talk to you about your book and get the message out there that this might help. Um, I, I'm just wondering if uh, there's anything that we haven't touched on, on either the issues of uh, gun safety laws or your book that you would like to leave our audience with before we wrap. You know, I just want to say this and, you know, getting into COVID and I, I tell everybody this because it is, it is a uniquely um, horrific thing that people are going through with people being sick alone and dying alone and families are going through the aftermath of that. And so I hope people who read my book, if nothing else, walk away from that book and say, I just, I need to make sure I know who my helpers are and that you all stay connected with your helpers. We have these great new technologies like Zoom, but also who I can be a helper to because this country, let's face it, we're social beings, we need each other. And unlike what the current administration does trying to break people down, the truth is, this not, this is that's not what we need. We need each other, know who your helpers are, know who you can be a helper to. Together, we're gonna to get through it. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was beautifully said, and I hope it will give comfort to the many people out there who have already suffered, and unfortunately, those who have, it's still in their future. Um, I'm hoping we can get control, of course, of the pandemic quickly, um, but until we do, we need help. And so thank you for giving that to us. And thank you for being an activist in getting gun laws under control. Um, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you Thanks so for having me. We hope you listening also enjoy this episode. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and send us suggestions, ideas for future topics, and speakers you would like to see via Jill, myself, or our website. Lastly, Intergenerational Politics is now on Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and rate our channel to support us. Thanks for listening, and see you on our next episode.